This was very nice. Um, hi, everyone. Um, we started today's episode uh, with a short clip from the piece Wherever I Am, The Sky Is Mine, made by Juniper Foam. And uh, I'm happy to have him today as my guest on the podcast. We know each other from a common friend, Roshna Kamini, and she was already a guest in the second episode. And I'm super happy to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes. Actually, I remember how I got introduced to your work. If I can just jump in and start talking about your work instead. Um, Roshanak actually showed me your video piece, We Have a Wonderful Life. Is that the right title? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, We Have a Wonderful Life. Because she figured I would love it, and I, I totally love it. I mean, to me, I, I, don't, uh, I don't know if I'm describing it right, but it's family, friends from Bosnia that moved to Australia. It's my fa yeah family my uncle and my aunt uh, in the late 90s. Yeah, and they kept sending you yeah. VHS tapes yeah. and pictures over the years of the good life that they, they wanted you to keep hoping that it's possible. Yeah. It kind of, it's a nice, 
gesture. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And uh, this is something that, that I rewatched years after um, they actually were sending this. I was like a kid, you know, at the time. But um, the thing is, uh, it was uh, my family was not the singular one, you know. It was actually a phenomenon that was occurring in that time uh, of families moving away and getting displaced and then trying to keep in touch with those who stayed behind. But I think also that region, I think it's a common story for any um, war-torn societies, you know. Nowadays we have Skype, we have, uh, you know, video calls in every forms, but back then it was a uh, tape and photographs, you know. And I mean, I love it so much because there's this humor and this kind of an innocence and a fascination in the, in the world that they have arrived in and like sending you little messages in a bottle in a way. But the camera work is what steals it for me. Also, the music—it's—it's mm -hmm. it's kind of like diegetic, like yeah. environment that they—they have the TV playing, yeah. and then you hear the music. But I—I I just love the camera work because they're—they're kind of like looking at all the logos and then the fancy uh, graphics on your stereo, and yeah. and it's—I don't know—it's—it's um—it's a little bit like flexing, which I love, yeah. but. There's something beautiful about the the way that they just look at these objects really zoomed up closely. Have you ever heard of this documentary or seen it called The Battle of Chile? No. It's phenomenal. Right about it. Yeah, Patricio Guzman okay. from, I think, 1973 and looking at the political turmoil. So it starts, it's like Allende and then the uh, counter-revolution. So it starts with people flooding the streets and giving their opinions to these camera, this camera crew. And they're interviewing random people, right? All different kinds of political opinions. And the, what they're saying is just like on fire. They, they really are passionate about what they're saying. But that the cameraman or the camera person is just kind of drifting everywhere, looking at their shoes, looking at their hands when they talk, looking at the car that they're sitting on. And that camera work is for me what takes the yeah. it steals the show and it's it's kind of like what you did not you yeah. but the yeah i exactly it's just like it was that. it was you know everything was on one tape and uh, so what my work in it was actually this post production where i just uh, reorganized the whole tape in six different video channels where i would just like group different activities when they were riding horses it's on one channel when they were like swimming in the pool they were in the zoo or like recording brands in the house but yeah i think this work even though it was actually one when i'm always presenting my work in some new environment or whatever this is i always present as well it's it was one of it's my first work that i could say it was uh, something that defined my overall interest yeah. in a way and I definitely find it funny. A lot of people don't, but when they see, when I explain how oh, it was this and that, I always use a bit of humor because it's this between sad and and funny, you know. And uh, I could, you know, I could watch this work every day, all day. Right? I think I could too. <laughs> it's a big inspiration. For yeah, me. it's really also the music. I know every song from this because I was, of course, working on it for a long time and. You know, but sometimes from some of the works, you know, even if I don't ever put this work, you know, some transitional ones, but a couple of those that I did that I would say they were milestones of my practice, I could watch all day, all, all the time. It's just like your second nature or something. Yeah. I just love how warm it is as a feeling. I get a lot of warmth from it. And I really feel like my work, the shots are often static and really composed. And I, I want less of that. I want more of this chaotic kind of, 
human touch that is all over your piece. I think that's something. I, I watched your works and we're going to come to that uh, as well. And uh, what also I love about your work. I think I want more of that to myself, but um, I want maybe first for the for the people who are listening to get to know you a bit more. First of all, I introduced you as a uh, Jupiter foam. That's your Juniper, sorry, <laughs> Jupiter, Juniper foam. And this is your uh, artistic name. Yeah. Okay. And what it does it mean? I was at a music festival uh, and somebody came up to me, they were serving hors d'oeuvres. You know when they come with these little silver trays and they're like, do you want some little snacks at a yeah. party, kind of fancy thing? And the name of the hors d'oeuvres was Juniper Foam. And so I just took it from that, basically. So if I got it right, you see the thing and it's like, oh, that's a cool name. I want this for my artistic like oh, alter ego or yeah something like that cool when that happened oh uh, probably i would say more than five years ago but not quite 10 so maybe seven mm -hmm. years ago okay yeah okay and uh, you live in berlin you're a teacher yeah where i teach at three different universities and i teach privately so i'm kind of spread mm -hmm. out over the city um you know udeka university yeah. of art um I teach at the sound studies program mostly. I used to teach also in the art department and the music department. And um, I teach at Funkhaus. Uh, there's a university there. And I teach in some music programs, sometimes a film program. And I teach at a, an exchange program, oddly enough, for non-artists. And they're all coming from, they come from the States and they spend maybe a, a semester here and they study basically art with me. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just also writing some questions I have in mind. Because you're teaching so much, we're going to come to this, how to go and get into this academia, because I want to teach one day, I have no clue where to start or where to go. But um, first of all, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So you're from US, you studied there. And you came here for work or for studying as well? Um. It was a postgraduate program, so kind of like what you're doing. I had a stipend, you know, mm -hmm. some money uh, to just live as an artist. And I had that almost three years, two and a half years. Uh, so it was a nice little cushion for my landing. But I honestly, I came before that uh, to be a guinea pig. I had some German teachers when I was getting my master's. And they said, hey, do you want to do you want to try this? Just move to Germany for a little bit. I'm like, oh, of course. <laughs> and so I went and I uh, caught the bug, you know, I wanted mm -hmm. to come back. As I said, I was listening your talks in other podcasts and some topics that you were touching and uh, what stays with me, stayed with me. I was really interested in this, um, uh, first of all, your work as a teacher and how it came to this and um, how you went from one place to another. And I mean, I had you, you had this like topic or it was a project called Negative Money. Mm -hmm. This is how it went. But you teach... Um, how like professionalization of, of it's a topic that goals, is close yeah. to my heart yes. because I feel like it's in the blind spot of art school and music school yes and they I would say that I teach many other things but this is probably the sweet spot where yes. I think it the way I teach it it's not really professionalization it's more about survival skills but connecting that with artistic development mm -hmm. because for me the classic professionalization is you know 
shining your shoes and making everything polished and making it what you already do presentable to the world. But I think that's not a deep enough, uh, um, you know, understanding of what you need to do. And I want to go deeper. And I think that professionalization is just like surface level stuff. No, I mean, I completely agree. And I love this because um, I don't think many places, um, I, I, I don't know if I would call this subject like that, but I have this idea, actually that idea that I had, but I, I learned after finishing university that I had no skills mm. of like how to hustle. And I was like, because now I'm on this fellowship at uh, university in Braunschweig and I was not in the setup of university for seven, eight years, you know, and then seeing all these students, you know, all of them expressing themselves in the way they want. They're like, and I just want to tell them like, quit all these other workshops and go and learn how to make latte art because that's gonna, you know, yeah. make you money. I feel like because, and then I'm, I mean, like maybe we are in this way also protecting them just to still live a bit in a, this paradise idea and just dedicate to their creativity and then let them suffer afterwards. Uh, because, you know, or like, for example, how to do administrative work, you know, that, you know, most of your lives, you're going to become a fictional writer rather than a writer for project proposals. It's you're going to invent ideas that are never going to go anywhere. But um, even like how to do taxes and they were like, oh, we do have this seminar. I was like, do they teach you how to fake taxes, how to make fake invoices, how to do the circles? I mean, this kind of skills, of course, you learn afterwards, but would be cool that there is some realistic point of view during university where teachers actually tell you, hey, of course, it's great. You can live from anything. You can live from art. But it's not going to ha happen just like that. You really need to be extremely lucky or with rich parents or family or, you know, certain status, let's say. Uh, but yeah, it's not all like I didn't have that in university. Yeah, I think that they are giving that a little bit more and more. And I think some of it is um, very helpful. Like you learn how to do your CV and learn how to do maybe some artist statements. I think that's important. But I also feel that it's a little bit like taking anti-anxiety pills, right? You think you're doing everything the right way because you're doing what they taught you to do as a professional, but this is avoiding the deeper problem. And I'm not judging anybody who takes whatever pills they want to take, right? Like if you need those, take them. But I think that the, the real transformation that you need to go through is you run towards the anxiety. You don't go for the safety boat. Right. So I think, for example, a lot of artists are taught to speak in a certain language to their core target audience. Right. Speak intellectually, speak really profoundly, speak in a critical sort of faux critical way. OK, I think that's fine if that's what you really want to do. But I think that for me, a smarter way to survive would be speak to the person who's not even paying attention. Speak to the person who barely even cares about the fact that you're doing this because i think that's where if you want to build an audience it's going to come from right there's not i i think if we get into the topic of marketing it gets a little bit boring but i i try to absorb those things because i feel like it does actually it can impact an artist's career and how they actually try to build not just a community but a following and you know building yeah. a world the thing is i think i mean a lot of things comes from experience and um 
what you are also saying, I'm also curious, so maybe you can say a bit about it exactly now, like how did you come to teach this? Because you are also quite young, you know, and I assume you also benefit a lot from the teacher pro teacher position because you know it's exchange it's not like one-way street being a teacher and there is a student there is always like feedbacks and at least this is how i imagine that it is you know being a yeah. but like how it came that you um started to teach have you ever seen that meme where somebody drinks a bottle of water and it's like doing something healthy and then the next day they're like the guru like it's a lifestyle you know <laughs> i kind of feel like i might be guilty of that because i just I wanted to study something like strategy, basically. Mm -hmm. And for me, teaching was a way to learn it together with my students. So I think a lot of what I do teaching-wise, I'm, I'm not learning and like reading a script and giving my students information that I've memorized or you know put down in a lesson plan. I think a lot of it is just me diving into a, a subject with them. But I have some instincts and I have some teaching experience. I was... This sounds a little bit funny, but I was basically a kid who used to teach other kids how to play music. And so I've always loved teaching. And um, I think I started university teaching when I was fresh out of grad school in L.A. And then okay. I just when I moved to Berlin, this uh, fellowship, you know, it was paid. I didn't have to do anything. So I had some free time in a way. And I just voluntarily taught classes at the University at of University. Art. So this was a great chance for me to kind of build up some chops and a little bit of CV points. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there, I just let the ball roll. I took a big break. I went and had sort of a fake business career. <laughs> what would be that fake business career? Um, I think of it as um, failing upward. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> I think that um, I did an art project. You mentioned it, Negative Money. Yes. And this is a business model. And I sold records from my record label under this business model called Negative Money. And this is really just lighting money on fire, you know, like they do in rap videos. But. Um, okay, well, like, wait, wait, you were making music, you were putting them on the records. Yeah. And then instead of you paying me for the records. The record. I paid you. So I was really just sending money in the, in the direction towards the consumer, yes. towards the audience. Right? You had a lot of money, huh? Well, this is the life of a, of a grant hunter. Like you have more money than you know what to do with. But you can't actually spend it on things that you want. Right? Okay. But actually, I, I'm making it overly simple. The money was coming in from vinyl sales. And I would take the money that we earned from selling you know, records mm -hmm. and gave it to the people who downloaded the same music so it was actually a little bit like a, a money so actually we're on zero huh? on zero all the time okay okay but somehow nobody seemed to notice that this was an extremely bad business model right and people started inviting me to do talks and you know teach classes in business innovation schools and you know um, how they came around your project or your business I think it's just one of those things where it's a conversation starter you know I haven't done this for this is like a 12 year old project and Every time I go somewhere and uh, do a podcast, people ask me about this. Yes. Right? So it's, it's a conversation piece more okay. than anything. And the conversation involves art and business, right? So somehow somebody thought I was some kind of authority on business, even though I had no idea. I was doing opposite of what a good business person should do, <laughs> right? Yeah. But then you fake it till you make it. So I just kept getting all these business opportunities and eventually I became a business manager for galleries and studios and 
had really big clients, you know, Kanye West, Marina Abramovich, things like this. Really? Yeah. So it was a kind of exhilarating career, but it took me away from my sense of purpose, which teaching really connects me with. It's much more meaningful mm. to me. So when I came back to teaching, I had all these business experiences and I wanted to approach it in a more meaningful way because not every artist wants to be rich. Not every artist wants to be famous. Some of them approach it, I hate to use the word uh, spiritually, but it's, it's a practice and they just want to do something beautiful and put that into the universe and just live and survive maybe if they can. So it's not all about being a business business person, but just being able to survive. Sometimes it's also really important. Mm -hmm. So but then becomes more about time management, you know? I don't know. I think that you could give somebody all the time in the world and they would maybe not figure it out. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, when you say if uh, it's not about earning money, it's not about like becoming famous. I mean, fame is like, let's leave this on the side, but just like that you can, um, you know, live from what you do if you don't do that and you still want to do this thing then you need to live from something else you know yeah. so that's when the time management like if i need to work one two three four five jobs when is the time to create then you can you know then the quality of the work or i don't know could suffer or or be like that so it's then it's still it's a model that you need to uh, master how to have this like a bit more serious hobby i don't yeah. know yeah that's true I think that it's fine when you're 20, maybe even 30, to have this hobby that costs probably a lot of time and money, maybe, um, and you're not getting the kind of um, feedback or like results that you're looking for. At a certain point, it gets old, and that's a different kind of survival, but I'm talking about that. A lot of people give up you know, when they're 30, 35, 40 because yeah well you have time to give up no. <laughs> but you're on fire you're, yeah. you have a lot of success stories so it's for them not enough to have a hobby that they could afford even if they have a nice job i think you need just to kind of feed your your spirit your human spirit sometimes that yeah this this is meaningful to somebody else uh, besides just me no definitely i completely understand that and uh I think this is, I don't know, I discovered this, uh, we, we spoke about it like a, a year ago that I st discovered this new medium in, in art, which is comedy, and that again lights some kind of fire in me and, and completely different energy that I felt I had when I started in visual arts with a project we have wonderful life and I was like having all this, everything is possible. Now I, and then, you know, after 10 years, this kind of, energy fade away through your everyday struggle, like hustling, trying to live and so on. And it's like, oh my God, is it how, until when it's gonna become so hard? Until it comes this moment, like discovering comedy, it's like, again, I don't earn money from that, but I don't care. And it's uh, at least, I'm, I, I'm feeling I'm getting paid by this energy actually investing in this and uh, or, or getting it from it and from the public, from the people that I'm actually of course I'm doing it for myself. There is a huge aspect of, you know, comedy having this ego and uh, validation and stuff like that and being on the stage, everyone is looking at you. So there is all these layers, but for me, it's the most important actually that I say what I want to say and that resonates with the people. 
and immediately you know if it does or not. And actually it is a public completely different than what I got used to it. I think that you are already kind of explaining some of the kinds of feedback that I think an artist would even benefit from. Because you could be an artist and do some shows in a little, you know, for, uh, abandoned shopping mall that, you know, five people go to and that's just not enough. But as a comedian, if you're doing that, you're not telling jokes to yourself, right? You're, you are on stage and that's, even if you're not making money from it, you're getting something from it. And I think that's what artists mm -hmm. eventually need to cultivate to, to keep going. I think there's so much that artists could learn from comedians. Yes. I mean, if you don't have, as I, I don't have much of the discipline, like in a sense, oh, I'm going to be in studio from, from, you know, eight to four or like a very fast pace of production. Um, it doesn't happen often. And, you know, even if I would get a fellowship or scholarship, then you have this money. But, you know, there is no production every day or every great idea comes every day. So I think this way of working with a comedy, which actually in a week I can have three, four, five of them. It's something that actually keeps me going. And like, okay, I actually am productive in a way, you know, I have this always feeling I'm not productive enough, unfortunately, but then like, okay, I'm having this, I can write, and this is actually contributing all of this other research, you know, I, I want to do it. So I feel like this felt, it is a research model for me. It's like a working model yeah. that everything, I see it all as a, as a one thing. It's just like, oh, I'm going on a stage. It's not a gallery wall. It's, it's a stage and the public is there. It's a bit slightly different, which is great. You communicate in a different way. But this experimentation, it's something that became so interesting to me that I think in some years, I mean, last year or two years ago, I started finally to figure out, okay, I'm entitled to allow myself to do something different that I'm not educated per se for, you know, in university. Why not? I cannot do a podcast. Like I can try and fail and ciao, you know, I, why cannot I start doing Senam Kovey? I can. And then why do I need permission from someone else to tell me you're good enough to do it? You can try and then fail. And this kind of experimentation for me, it's now becoming so interesting. Mm -hmm. Like even if I want tomorrow to start doing a cooking class and then see how I become super good in this yeah. and just building these skills. But I think when I was younger in twenties, it was really like, oh, I got education in this and I can just be that. Yeah. And that's it. I wish that artists had a little bit more of this punchline mentality that comedians have. Because even when you're experimenting, you're not like torturing your audience. You're actually experimenting with, you know, laughs in mind and putting yourself sometimes as the butt of a joke. You're not always being cool. You're, you're making fun of yourself sometimes. And I think that artists sometimes forget that. And then they want to go explain their art all the time imagine that a comedian was explaining their jokes <laughs> i mean it could be actually part of a good shtick but <laughs> let's imagine that it's not i think that's a bad position to be in yeah it would be crazy but yeah i think the explanation or if it worked or not comes through the reaction of the public if it doesn't then you just let it go or you work more on it and you cannot blame the public uh, ever that's the thing and i think um yeah, that's a lot of people tend to do that. Yeah. Blame on someone else. And uh, but yes, like how do you how long? First of all, just to be clear, how long are you teaching? Like how many years? Tila? Oy, um, I guess I started teaching in the university uh, in 2010. 
or 2000, no, 2011. Okay, so it's like a 10 years, a bit stronger than that. And um, so you enjoy it and um, it was always the same subject about like preparing the artists, young souls for the life afterwards and... How no, always, no, I think I taught so many different things. Sometimes there are themes that come back that I didn't know I was going to be excited mm -hmm. about. Um, I mean, in the very beginning, I just took whatever classes I could. I taught, yeah. you know, web programming, which I'm not such an authority on. <laughs> I taught uh, so uh, mixed media. Ah, uh, that's where the fake courses. it till you make it comes in, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of teaching they give you everything you need to do, and you just show up and just like kind of read from the mm -hmm. the syllabus or from the teaching um, plan. I hate that. I never want to do that. I'm always like avoiding that. Is is as much as I can. And I don't like to do that with, I write a syllabus for what I'm teaching, but I don't write a script because it's just not how I teach. I'm more like, show up like a jazz person. What key are we playing in? Okay, let's go. Right? That's more, I think that's where the, the learning becomes real. Right? Yeah. Not hearing me talk about something. It's more having a conversation together. Exactly. I'm very, I would really like to, if I would be in your class, because if you say it's conversation, um, and I, you also mentioned you were teaching, you know, sound, and so you also work on with the sound a lot, and and uh, in the video. But um, what kind of questions are you getting from students? So what is bouncing back? I know when I was in university, and I mean it was completely different having a bachelor degree and master's degree, and this um, type of like masters I did in Germany, and there was like barely kind of guidance of professors. Uh, but in a bachelor, I had luck. I had a very good professor and a pedagogue, and he's an amazing artist. But uh, there was also this, uh, you know, we were like super young, like we were like 20 to 23, and we saw this person as our guide mm -hmm. through all art, you know, because he was first who revealed us, like taking virginity, and that was the best artist for us. He knows what's good, what's good, how to do it. So, of course, every Wednesday when we had a class, we would just go there with our ideas and getting to tell him, like shaking, looking for his feedback. I mean, I don't think that's a healthy way, the way it was. But still, um, it, he sparked a really good uh, interest in us and like teaching us how to speak about our own work, to not, not be a, even on that age, like to write to speak, to defend, you know, uh, despite this fear that we felt towards him as a professor, even though he was like five, six years older than us, like not much. Like if you think of this, like, uh, oh, we need to have such a big respect because he's so like older and so. And um, but I don't know how it's here. Like, uh, do, do, do students feel the same? I mean, you said you don't you also freestyling a lot, but still there is this like kind of you are you have this chair where all the other chairs are might pointing to you know sure um there's a lot of things that we could talk about but i i i like to see students have all these different kinds of experiences one th one thing that i like is that universities art school and music school do a good job offering project-based learning i also like to do some of that but I think the downside of project-based learning is that you start thinking short-term. Everything that you do is you know, coming to an end at the end of the semester, your motivations, they kind of begin and end with each project. And so for me to 
offer a counterbalance, I'm looking for what's the long-term practice about. So you mentioned this piece, We Have a Wonderful Life, that it was one of your first pieces that felt like you. That to me is a big sign saying, here's Mila's artistic DNA. We can find it here. You always have it. You don't have to go get DNA. You have it. You're born with it. So where is it? And this is a question that I like to talk about uh, with my students, and not just once. Like I like to revisit it over and over again. And then they get excited. What do I, what am I about? And one of, the, so you ask me questions that students bring to me. And one of them is really about how can I explore all these different interests that I have? Uh, musicians like to jump around between genres. Artists like to jump around between media, right? It's, it's normal. I think most of us as artists want to do that. I think it can be good. I think it can be healthy. But I also think it can be dangerous if you don't approach it with some kind of understanding what ties my universe together. Because if you just... I, I sometimes share a story with my students that stuck with me. One of my friends um, basically inherited um, somebody's um, house and artworks when they died, an artist. And I went to the house to just, you know, kind of look at it and we started to clean it up. And in this house was just a lot, a lot of art that had nothing to do with each other. And I ju it just gave me this sinking feeling like, oof, is that how I want to go out? Where I have all of these different passions and they're not gelling at all. And so for me, I think it's an important um, sacrifice that an artist needs to kind of balance. Do I do everything that I like? Or can I really find the things that are most important, even if they're not in the same genre or the same medium? And can I build my practice on these things? Can I really accentuate what it is? And what could that be? What could wrap my work together? You put yourself in your work, right? So your your work is some sometimes personality driven, especially if you know your stand-up is there's no question. But not every artist does that. And so if you do that, that's kind of a one possible way of wrapping it all together. But if you don't have that, what's another way of wrapping it all up? Yeah, I guess this, uh, I completely understand what you're saying. It's like, um, if you want really become even more serious in it, just put a bit thought in it, like actually to, from your own way, not everything has, has the same importance probably what you create but like to find something that would as you said to make like a jelly to to glue it together and then just go into this direction and devote like really professionalize them in this like not in a um, corporate way but in a conceptual way maybe I think this is really important and I think it's really important for your audience to have some kind of starting point what do you do even if it's wrong it's going to be wrong mm -hmm. but at least you can give them some kind of worm you know, to come get. Hook, yeah. No. Yeah, I mean, I like, I mean, for me, when someone asks me, like, oh, in which medium do you work? Oh my God, I cannot start if I would then really need to point every work. Each work is a different medium. Yeah. Really. If you go on my website, each work is different medium. But for me, all of them make sense together because they all come from the same initial thought, anger, frustration, happiness, whatever. And but the, uh, I mean the topic-wise, it's they all come together, you know. 
and uh, they also all each of the works next work come from the previous one you know it's kind of very much tied to it but of course what is now someone can see about my practice it's not that's just like let's say the the top of the cake you know there is so much the works that I call them bridge works or something that keeps you going in between but it's not the the something that it's gonna stick with you as I said like some works I I, I forgot I did them you know I have full hard drive of works and performances and stuff that I did at at masters you know through this project-based um, semester and uh, you know schooling and I don't I don't my heart was not in it it was more like a test but still I learned quite from it you know but it's not for me that I want to put it like maybe now in portfolio maybe in 10 years I will because I revisit them I revisit some of the works that I did 10 years ago and it's like oh my god this is actually pretty good work like let's put it back on you know and then after two it's like oh my god no and then you and it's always like this um I don't know do I become nostalgic or something it's like oh actually it was very honest space when I did it it was not thinking about what others want from me and like where it, it was really honest place for some works yeah. but you know I don't think they have like a, enough strength that I would want them to have now and so on, but they could become part of the new work and so on. So for me, um, also like um, talking about compromises in the art, you know, and your practice and uh, especially after you finish university, you always like developing your own personality, your own DNA, I'm this, my work should be like that, perceived like this. And then you come out and what I really started to learn after finishing is this uh, dismantling your own ego that you're actually building your whole life as an artist, but trying to dismantle and to compromise that. And uh, that sometimes, you know, censorship doesn't mean censorship, but actually responsibility and how to work with others that you know if my piece it's not alone in this world and in this exhibition space or in this discourse or context that's supposed to exist i need to talk with other artists the curators with everyone to see what's the best for everyone not just for me and this is something that's really um hard to understand if you're not doing it immediately yeah i think that in my mind at least I try to separate the words compromise and sacrifice as sort of different things. Mm -hmm. And compromise to me is a little bit, I don't know, almost negative or optional. And um, there are certain compromises you would need to make if you wanted to achieve certain results. So, you know, if you don't want to make those compromises, then you shouldn't try to expect certain kinds of appreciation. And, you know, maybe you will stay underground or whatever. That's a that's a choice, um, but I think sacrifices I generally think of as a good thing, and I I teach strategy right. That's that's one of the ways that I describe professionalization in a kind of alternate language, and it's. Have you ever heard this expression that a, that a baby, when it's born, eventually becomes human the first moment that it laughs? I like that little expression. When a baby laughs, now it's human. And <laughs> it takes some time. It huh? takes some time. And I think that for me, sacrifice is the moment where your strategy becomes real. Because you, you don't have a strategy if you're just trying to do everything. 
you bec- you have a strategy when you say, okay, I can no longer do all these things. I'm sacrificing this. And I'm focusing on this. So that's how I, I separate sacrifice and compromise. And it, it's, yeah, I have mixed feelings about compromise, but sa- sacrifice I'm all in. I mean, wouldn't you say that there in every compromise there is a, a bit of sacrifice? Yeah, we might be playing word games. <laughs> no, I, I mean, the thing is, is. It's, it's more that I was thinking like I had friends and... Um, colleagues that sometimes we think oh like oh you know but Mila whatever whenever you exhibit this piece it always looks different you know I was like yeah so what like the work was made five six years ago or ten years ago or a year ago and maybe now I feel different about it or maybe the space is different or maybe I feel it could be different now and then you know it's just a I see it as a, a live thing and never something that should never be uh, how do you say, locked or vexed and uh, okay, it's done for good and it's it's like this, even like the work like We Wonder for Life, I could whenever, I, now when I would exhibit it, maybe it would have a slightly different form or different presentation and this is like, oh, but shouldn't you as a like serious artist always have same predisposition of exhibiting your work or your concepts and it's like, Depends, you know. Yeah. I also change as a person. What I thought three, four years ago might not apply now, you know. Or tomorrow, what we speak now, probably in maybe some years I would be, oh my God, like it's a completely different person. It was not me. So I can never think of this, um, like, yeah, um, yeah, vexing certain ideas, certain opinion or feeling oh. in, in, in this experience. I, I think that's something else than what I'm, conceiving of and I'm not sure that it's so important to work out the differences but in in my mind a compromise is something like you maybe alter the the meaning or the quality of the work to reach a certain audience yeah I think what you're doing is sounds like it's it's a fun like not even fun but it's an exploration of what the piece can be it's not like you're lowering the quality to reach a certain audience for me a sacrifice is um for example, I want my work to be primarily visual. I want it to be almost uh, like I've, I've taken a musical practice and it's almost like a jelly donut. Like I put it inside this donut, which is video installation and film, right? And when you open it up inside, you find the music. That's important for me. Now, if I go release a bunch of albums without visuals, I'm watering that down. So I'm not making the kinds of sacrifices that I would need to be able to be known as a primarily visual artist who has this secret jelly donut inside, right? Like that's, that's a sacrifice to me. Yeah. Even though I'd love to. I'd love to go do some performances and DJ sets, but it's just like, I'm not there yet. Okay, that's a great point maybe to go into your practice because also on the way here, uh, I actually saw a person putting a makeup in Uban station, uh-huh. and this is one of the of your works. Can you remind me the name? And it was one of the recent. No, it was not the recent. You had also one in Belgrade. You did recently. Yep, um, the one that you're talking about with the makeup is called Behind the Scenes. Yes, Behind the Scenes. Uh, and that's about, I guess, a year and a half old, and came, you know, pandemic piece. So I didn't mm-hmm. really show it around too much, um, and that is, uh, it's a bunch of portraits basically in public spaces focusing on somebody doing their makeup and there's this really continuous transform transformational 
um, soundtrack. So you get the feeling that maybe you're hearing the environment where you are sometimes because there are bird sounds and there's nature sounds, but sometimes there's just music and they kind of blend between, um, yeah, music and kind of environmental sounds. Uh, this, what you were now explaining, I forgot the name of the artist. I feel so bad now. And because now when I was in New York and there was one uh, piece which was, you know, free entry and it was my friend recommended me. I went there. So you enter. It was uh, uh, in, in Williamsburg um, bank that was kind of abandoned. And uh, so it you know, had a great space and so on. And the video um, was just like. I mean, this is how I perceive the report has a certain topic regarding the money and so on. But it was like recorder recording of everyday life, people working, like, you know, packing, packaging, shipping the packages. Are but you talking about maybe Phil Niblock? No, but I have the name of the artist, actually. And uh, I tell you, and the, what was for me, so the, the video piece was mostly in... Um, it was uh, mute, hmm? but around us were um, like musicians with instruments and they were making the actually the feeling and, you know, they were really dictating that you were feeling, OK, it's just like, you know, you think it's a sound from the video. It's like every, you know, recording from the street. But no, they were manipulating everything. And then the, it's like they're pumping the feeling and feeling it. Just, oh my God, something is going to happen. Nothing is going to happen. The guy is going to send the package to the post office and that's it. But this, it was so insane. I went twice. Once, yeah. I, once I was on mushrooms. So the second time I needed to go to see if it was mushrooms or it was really good, you know, <laughs> because I had all these uh, conspiracy theories in my head while watching it. Like that it was actually Sasha Waltz. I don't know. It's because it was also in New York at the same time. She had a, had a performance. And um, it was so good. Like if you would cut out the sound. I don't know. But yeah, I tell you the name of the artist. I think it's actually quite... Yeah, Jill, Jill Maggit. I don't know if I say it right. Tender Presence. Yeah, Jill Maggit. Tender Presence. Yeah, so good. So good. And when I grasp on your piece, uh, reminded me a bit on this because I really love the sound you're making. Thank you. It's really good. Also, the when I was listening, the pod, it, actually it was from that video, the first 10 minutes. And it's really different. Like, yeah, almost like transportation to something else. I felt like really good. I but, yeah, the, the listening. Also, the, the staring at the sun that you have I mean also from there staring at the sun is um, one of two pieces that I did uh, together with uh, Roshanak Amini and she did the video she filmed in Dhaka Bangladesh and I did the sound and both of the the tracks they're very different one is a bit more dramatic and one is a little bit lighter the dramatic ones this staring at the sun um, both of them have this astral jazz quality, at least to, to my ears. And I'm using a little bit of samples, Charlie Hayden, Bill Evans, and things like that. I, I do that a lot. Um, I, 
I just like this idea of music kind of drifting away and I don't know, it's, it's a little bit dreamlike, um, but then it's also grounded somehow in the scene that you're watching. So you have the sounds of people driving their bikes and people, I don't know, talking as they walk by and wind and airplanes. So it's somehow anchoring you into the scene that you're watching, both of them. I think especially the other one, which is called Wherever, Wherever I Am, The Sky Is Mine. But uh, I, I really like the color of your uh, movie. I don't know, do you use some specific uh, color um, correction? I mean, it's, it has certain tone. I don't know if all of them, but the one at least that you sent to me. And also, how, come, how is your artistic process? So process, like wh the, the recording, do you have like first idea, then you go for recording, or it's like um, you collect materials from, from time and then... Something that I think is really important is that uh, as an artist, uh, it's good to know if you're in a, in a space that's a little bit saturated, so you need to be precise about what you're doing, or is this wide open territory and I just need to jump right in. So that's for me the big difference. Um, with behind the scenes, I felt like primarily it's saturated territory. Like you could look at a James Benning film or an Andy Warhol film, and it's pretty similar in terms of construction or Sharon Lockhart. Um, but uh, I wanted to find the places where I'm different and hit them as hard as I possibly could. And so that's why, you know, in a James Benning film, you might see uh, a bunch of people smoking cigarettes. You have primarily diegetic sound and a flat background, right? Like a normal portrait. So you can focus on the face. Well, in mine, I do the opposite. The backgrounds are sometimes equally as interesting as the person's face. So you're kind of distracted. And also the soundtrack is super active. So you have all these things to consider. Where am I going to focus? And that's um, as much as I love James Benning's. He was a teacher of mine. Um, oh. Film, I films, I felt that, you know, this is where I need to separate. And you, you don't do that accidentally jumping around in a unknown territory you have to be kind of conscious of what's your position other projects um i don't know what i'm doing but i know that i, I need to do it and i'm going to jump in so i'm doing this project now where i'm interviewing my students so i'm kind of blending my teaching practice with my artist artistic practice and we just go to the park and we talk maybe for a couple hours and i ask them questions uh, about their practice and at first I had no idea what I was doing. And then I realized this is a film and I'm going to cut this together. And it's about, you know, artists um, dealing with the mostly dealing with the most difficult parts of being an artist yeah. and just splicing those together. And, you know, I haven't finished it yet, but that's that's an example of where I, I had no idea um, where I was going. I just jumped in. I mean, I know there are other yeah. films that are somewhat similar in construction, but I felt there's enough room for, for me to kind of figure it out after the fact. So to answer your question, it really depends on the yeah. project. But usually I have some kind of idea yeah. where, I'm, where I'm going. That's cool. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I was so, I'm so jealous that uh, James Benning was your teacher he's amazing he's, like he's so amazing i mean for me i think uh, yeah i discovered his work randomly actually on youtube yeah. when i was doing my thesis burning field and um 
I, I think I watched his like skies, you know, Thanks. oh my God. And, and I was so jealous. And I know when I'm jealous means it's good. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, uh, you know, then after I did Burning Field, I was quite uh, obsessed with the fire and burning stuff and uh, the idea of ashes. And then this just long, um, long footage recordings. Like even Burning Field, it's 100 minutes, but I have like 600 minutes of that work, yeah. which was also not used. I was just obsessed with this like, um, yeah, long, seemingly, seemingly boring and nothing happening. But yeah, just the idea of it, it was, I was so obsessed. And I know when I was uh, uh, directly after my Burning Field thesis, I went to residency to Latvia just two weeks was nothing I had no clue what to do and I was just so still thinking about like landscapes and I was so much into this and how you know I just wanted to get it out of my system and I did this like piece was like I don't know um seascape something like that and yeah I was yeah yeah that's the one that I actually was it, it was coming from the just thinking about James Benning's practice and I actually was not so much of me there, but just as I was so influenced in this couple of months of it. And I really appreciate this type of time-based media and the way of... Both of those works I've seen from alternative documentation. So I saw a photo of, uh, what do you call it? Seascape? No. Yeah, Seascape. Yeah. And then the other one, I saw your performance of installing ah, the, the work. It's completely different. Yeah, so yeah, I haven't seen the video of it. Yeah. Is there a sound? Yeah, yeah, video, a burning field. It's uh, 106 minutes. It's, um, it's a yeah, field on fire, which I uh, recorded from five angles. So from one that actually came to be the piece, it's the one that fires is starting and going away. Other cameras were actually awaiting fire to come, you know. And um, it is, uh, yeah, recorded in real time. So it took roughly a bit less than two hours to burn like 10,000 square meters. And you can see also in some places my father controlling the fire and so on, but it has a sound. And uh, yeah, so you have like all this uh, growling. I don't know if it's, uh, I'm just inventing now English words. Like, you know, this monotonous sound of fire that in the beginning it's like, oh my God, something is starting. But after like half an hour listening this sound, it just becomes like too too much, you know, of saturation. In be Because also the fire, it's not, uh, how to say, the, the dynamic of the work, it's different. In beginning, it's a lot of fire. We're all obsessed to look at it, a lot of smoke. But as the fire is going away, it's just becoming this like, you know, here and there you see fire, you see smoke. It's becoming darker, you know. You start to hear other sounds from the village, not just the fire. So it's it's having different dynamics through the work, I would say. And I really enjoy this. Um, for me, it was always, I was saying, as long as you can watch the work, um, you could feel much more the, the importance of the, you know, how it was, you know, like kind of the heaviness of the ground, what it was meant to me, you know, in a way. So if you can, I could watch it all the time, you know, but not everyone can watch more than 10 minutes. I think this usual scope of like three, four minutes of people can look at the work, you know. 
um, I like how you bring your family into it a lot. I saw this other uh, f uh, f short film of yours, video of eating, and it's just over the food. And is it also your dad who is like, Mila, come eat, put down the fucking camera. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, like, those are, that's, uh, I love that piece. Yeah, I left it also in the, in the, in the, on the website. It's also the piece that I'm like, mm, should I or not? Because it was not exhibited enough, I would say. But it was uh, because, you know, I was spending a lot of time home in the village and finding things to do in the village in a specific way and that makes sense to you because, you know, whenever I go home, art makes no sense anymore, you know? Like, it just feels like you, you figure out that art can change the world, you know, when I'm home. And... Um, then I was just having this simple handy cam, you know, with me. And uh, it, it always happened whenever I come to visit from my university city to home, they would make this huge chicken and, you know, eat it with the uh, hands, you know, with the fingers and so on. And then uh, you would hear gossips, you know. This is where the time we gossip around what's happening in the village. And uh, we were talking about of the neighbor that supposedly died, but she didn't die, you know? It was just a lot of cars in front of the house. So our conclusion is like, oh my gosh, she's dead. And it's so funny because actually it's not dead, you know? And then I just decided, okay, uh, in the night I take camera and I go through the village. So actually I had like six, seven different videos and each of these videos is different house. So my idea was always to present it as the street, you know? The number of the house is actually number of the video. And um, I was always like, you know, spying through the windows, what they are doing. It's like observing the neighbor, like, and so I was quite like, thinking about these um, benchmarks that are connect, like, you know, because of geographical position, how much you interact with your neighbors, what this means, like in a small scale, but it can quite well translate to the, you know, geopolitics and so on. And how much like, um, content of your house depends on the content of the neighbor's house and, and the, the fences and stuff like that. So I was just like recording and, uh, you know, like uh, spying on my neighbors in the night. And I love, I love them like, um, yeah, this kind of involvement of the family and uh, other people and changing their everyday routine, you know. Have they seen these works where they are featured? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, uh, my family? Yeah. They enjoy every piece. I mean, they can't wait for me to come to do something else because it's not like they, um, I would say, uh, question the concepts or want to know why I'm doing it. They just want to do something. Because for me, that's already art. You know, maybe already mentioned it in some of the conversations on this podcast, but like, changing this everyday routine for me was already um, art. You know, like this piece here in the corner, this uh, eight skewers for pigs, it was done by my cousin and my father. And like also the, those are the rotation um, stuff that it's also handmade. And uh, yeah, so you connect them and they rotate in empty, you know, and make sound. But uh, this was also a thing that it was collaboration. My father, my cousin, also one metal worker, just, just one and probably the best because it's just one in the city. And this kind of 
we all come together to produce this piece and I'm not don't need to think is it going to be perfect or not for me the whole process is already the thing I really like that I also like the sentence that you said uh, a couple minutes ago when I go home art doesn't make any sense I, I, something like that it's just that's an interesting phenomenon to trace I think to try definitely because um maybe depends where you come from you know but if you're coming from the you know country that struggles in many different ways and people that their everyday life you know like as you were saying like choosing the public for me to speak with people who never consume art and culture in a way that going to galleries or museums like people that i grew up with art and culture that didn't cross their mind they consume it through television what's there what cons considered as culture and art that's it you know going to institutions which also are largely corrupted or not existing at all especially after 90s it's it's uh, you know what art means then to them you know like i go there with full of ideas and energy i'm gonna do this and that and i go there after two hours it's enough for me to like let go of all of my ideas and like rethink i'm always thinking why do i do this like does it make sense if it doesn't influence them for what i'm doing you know because i think this is the class or like i mean working class that builds the society you know, and if I cannot penetrate them, at least through now engaging them in my production of my work and so on. But, you know, I go there and then you, you hear, you know, uh, job problems, any other problems. It's just for me, then like you figure out that art cannot do much. I'm always reinventing the reasons why I want to do it, you know, when I go home. It's just like for them you, or you for myself, for even, for, even mm -hmm. for myself. Whenever I go there, I'm again asking myself why I'm doing this. It's always like kind of refreshing and trying to, you know, um, to find the meaning in it. What's the most recent version you gave yourself? I mean, recently I was, uh, I was visiting home because my grandmother was sick, but um, then it was, you know, full room, full house of us uh, at her home all women oh my god all aunts and cousins and all female it was too much you know and then of course we all live in different places different houses different ages so different dynamic you know of like who thinks what and then there it was like covid and you speak about this and then it's um i felt so lonely in a sense that i cannot also, you know, we are not educated to have a very nice dialogue, you know, like one person after another. So I really then felt that art needs army of people, you know, because I figure out that they looking at me talking about something, whether this is my art practice or, you know, they are mocking comedy. They're like, oh, this is clowns and stuff like or even if I'm just trying to penetrate some other ideas of like uh, what I learned through art or like consuming culture and art um, like you know getting inputs you know and then you have thoughts and produce and stuff like that um, 
or living in Germany and then you start talking about it and then there is a wall and there is nothing and they don't believe me. I'm not enough for them to believe me, you know, me as a one person. They all have different opinions, but I also have. Different, so it's, I felt like, OK, this is not art is not for one person and it should not be from one person, you know. I don't know, felt like this, that every idea I have or thought needs to be reinforced by many. Felt somehow. I don't know. This was the, I really felt powerless. I felt I wanted more people to put, to to back me up in this, you know? Yeah, I can understand. It's yeah. kind of, it's lonely. Yeah, that's, it, it can be, it, yeah, depends. Like, especially when you're within the family that, mm, then you are alone in the art world or culture world as a as a profession, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but it, this is the this middle generation. When I speak with my grandmother, also amazing. She's not asking much, but she's happy what I'm doing, whatever I'm doing. If I'm holding a microphone, I'm successful. <laughs> That's what I, like it's enough, you know? And if I can send money, means I'm doing well. If I don't send money, like, oh my God, you have some problems, like with the life there, is it all good, you know? So there is always the, the very simplified way of like, uh, she's not asking what's art or is it art or not, or what is it? If, you, if you're doing it, if you can live from it, that's fine. means it's good. I, I think I know the answer to this question, but in, in Bosnia, there's not really art funding, right? No. Okay. Because my experience is basically I lived in the States and then in other European countries where there's a lot of art funding, France, Holland, Norway, whatever, Germany. But in the States, there's not really art funding. I mean, there are a couple here and there, but maybe it's grown since I've left. I mean, I haven't been back since 2012. And I feel that there's um, the economy is almost like an ice cream sandwich. So you have the bottom where everybody's learning how to be an artist, funding their own projects, getting started, right? Then uh, on the top, you have the su successful artists, where it doesn't really matter where you're from because you're going to get shown everywhere, right? Yeah. And in Germany and other countries like that, you have the ice cream part of the sandwich. And here they can survive. They have a safety net and they have chances to get support from festivals and funding and all this kind of stuff, which to me is very different than the States. That's like the ice cream sandwich melted, right? There's just nothing in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> but I always had the feeling um, it, that's awful and I would prefer to live in Germany. However, if you just look at what's happening, the bottom cookie where you're all funding it yourself, it's really on fire. And I feel a lot of respect for the people who are doing it because a lot of them are probably in debt. They just got out of school or whatever, and they're going for it. They're putting everything on the line and there is no backup coming. They don't have this illusion. Yeah. They need to it's sink or swim. And I think the work is really powerful sometimes at that level. At the top level, I don't care. It's the same. Yeah. It's generic. It's everywhere. It's global. Yeah. Sometimes when I'm in countries like Germany and, I, and I, I look at this bottom cookie, I feel like it's a little too cozy. It's like you, you know that you can just go apply for some funding after this if this project sinks. It's a bit of a criticism. But my question is really about, is, that at, is it at all possible to compare my experience in the States with you in Bosnia, where there's no safety net, so if you're going to do it, you're going to do it all the way. Is that somehow comparable? No, yeah, definitely. I think, um, but uh, 
my safety net was to leave you know that's the um that's i think safety net of the of of possibility to leave Uh, and i mean to again be not like cross-continent but just you know cross-border but i definitely you know admire our friends and colleagues and you know like comrades that are trying there but i just um, i was speaking with hannah in last uh, last episode that it was really um, it's sad to see even the friends who are trying to stay and to be there and then they just get defeated after some years then you know it kicks in your personal feeling that you you have just one life you don't want to you know uh, grow old here and not uh, live up to your full potential potential intellectually or any other way and then you decide to leave because the country where you want to actually invest in um, can doesn't offer you this opportunity or it offers you by certain uh, maybe compromise or like sacrifice that it's uh, you know ideological or political that you don't want to agree with but you know depends what it's important if you want to stay there I have friends that I really care about but you know maybe we don't agree politically or but it's it's not like uh, even an option anymore if you want to grind there you need to be part of certain um, ideology or party or um, uh, yeah I was mentioning that many times that you know in these countries corruption it's not just a problem it's a mode of survival if you're not consent to it consenting to it it's you're nowhere like it's hard to live uh, straight it's not impossible but it's extremely hard yeah so a lot of people give up or like uh, of course if I had even like uh, when it comes to education it's not about just um, the the financial part of it or like jobs afterwards but you know in my academy when I was studying there were just two programs you know like painting or graphics and that's it I had no clue that there is such thing as art in public space and there is like art in like there is so diverse this uh, field because we had no input you know and there is also even if you want to you need to go out to actually find out your interests you know and um yeah so this is the thing like uh afterwards when i decided to stay here still you know like i'm not sure if i want to go back but um i want to be close to the region and uh um, i'm very happy that i'm gonna be in belgrade for some time now but um i'm kind of scared and excited it's different to be in belgrade than let's say in my village (laughs) i'm sure definitely (laughs) And uh, yeah, but it's, you know, it's also the problem whenever I speak with friends who live there and it's like, oh my God, don't come back, don't come back, don't, don't, don't think of it, you know. It's already discouraging, you know, it's making you feel scared of it, like fear of returning, fear of thought of it. Uh, and this is a bit, um, I feel like, um, lack of even self-respect, you know. I know when I went to New York by winning this award that is and then like you feel like responsible to do something with your life because you want this and uh, not a lot of people have this opportunity to do this and go there it's like a dream come true and so on I'm like yeah but 
I, 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 until when we gonna think of ourselves as like so low like that we need to stream and like go somewhere else to become something you know it's a bit I mean I know there is like different ways to look at it but sometimes feels so sad you know yeah. Now we went to some dark topics. We went to some dark topics. I would yeah. also say, though, that what you're saying, I, I hear you, but it's it's also true for most places in the world. Like, yeah. if you really want to make it as an artist, there are some hubs that we all tend to gravitate yeah. towards. So, But I hear what you're saying. I yeah. Mean, I mean, it's not our fault that these hubs are created in a way. I mean, it's very hard to decentralize this, yeah. you know? And... Um, I think fundings are a big part of it, as you said. I mean, for me, it's great to live here at, at the moment in Germany because of these fundings, you know? And depends, like, um, it's not it's not heaven, nowhere, but at least you have opportunity. You still need to work for it. You still need to, like, um, come into it. And, like, I don't think here uh, maybe sometimes the best projects get fundings, but those, <laughs> no. But the ones though, that have the like these people who have continuity you need to grind five ten years to be admitted at all to get something you know um sometimes the um the possibility of ai uh coming into the workforce is portrayed almost like immigrant labor so like the robots are coming for your jobs kind of thing, <laughs> right? This is, uh, <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the thing is, um, in, in a political conversation, the solution to that, I'm, th I'm talking about, um, people like Andrew Yang, who is, uh, an, you know, a politician from the States. And all I'm trying to say is that, um, in the, the world of music that already happened, um, digitiz uh, digitization already kind of cut the um, the bottom of the economy out. Like you, it's really hard to make money as a record label, and therefore it's difficult to make money as an artist because mm -hmm. it's basically all free at this point. The only people that are really profiting are the ones who are running these companies like Spotify and things like that. Okay, you if you're a huge artist, that's different. If you play a lot, you perform a lot, it's also different. Um, but the answer to the robots coming for your jobs question is sometimes pitched as you need this universal basic income, right? Which is a kind of a grant in a way. You yeah. just get it without applying. And maybe there are many more options on the table for how to solve this problem. But I think we, uh, this is a little bit the space in which the, the economy of mm -hmm. arts needs to be I think approached because um, the the possibilities that a lot of my students think exist don't. They're always asking me, how do we get on a record label? Which record label should I write? Can you give me a list of record labels? And I'm just like, you can write them, you can get on them, and that's really not, you're going to be right back where you started. I mean, unless it's a, there are some special labels out there, of course. But it's just like, it's a dream based on a different economy. Yeah. A time where... You could so actually profit. what do you suggest your students how to how to get money well i mean i try to introduce them to the grant world which is hard for musicians because part of the grant world is 
being able to talk about your work and musicians are not necessarily the best at talking about their work and they could but it's here here's there's a big difference i think a lot of artists already understand that the presentation of their work is a part of their work like that's built you the mm. like when you when you want to be a, a restaurant owner you you love cooking but there's this extra skill which is selling it you know like i have a restaurant it's a business yeah. the, the skill of cooking is somewhere inside there mm. and i think artists almost i wouldn't say by nature but just because of where the the art world has evolved over the over the centuries <laughs> somehow adapt to the mode of presentation and even selling a little bit better than musicians musicians have other people take care of presentation for them they just show up with their usb sticks or their laptops or their instruments and they're just like show me where to set up and let's do a sound check i'm ready right and so they don't think about how to present it but if they did they would realize this is already a social practice this is already interdisciplinary i have all the materials for a great conversation or a great pitch right there i just need to talk about them yeah. so that's one thing that they learn how to talk about their practice but i also feel like the antidote is uh to the to the lack of music sales from you know actual albums and mm -hmm. cds and whatever physical media i think it's um trying to almost how do you how do you describe this i think it's like trying to rise above all of that noise and make a practice that sticks out some other way and how can you make your practice stick out that's where professionalization is the wrong direction because professionalization is about fitting in what you really need to do is have a practice that's the, maybe the word is salient like sticks out but also feels like it's speaking to the to the moment and that's that's not something that a little bit of information is going to solve mm. you really kind of need to transform your practice and just really focus on what is it that i can do to just make it completely clear that this is not like what everybody else is doing yeah. so it's i think what's nice about that is that it can be an answer in the work not necessarily yeah. a band-aid on top of it no, I really like the way you speak about it and because, as we said before we started recording, you know, that uh, language is a tool to teach, you know, and to guide someone. And uh, the way you are describing that you're doing it, it's very, um, it's very interesting. It's very like, how you say, um, coming from the periphery, like to, to the student, like, you know, going around it and uh, like not giving you a solution because there is no solution you know everyone has different path at the end and uh, i really strongly believe that you know um, this like role of pedagogue and the teacher is a uh, it's a skill <laughs> that you need acquire by co through communication like how can you like teach otherwise like but the, that it's a very um, fine skill and not everyone ha can have it as well um, so I really enjoyed that part. Um, yeah, and I don't know, do we want to add something more um, when it comes to that or to your work? Something that I see disappearing in art education is um, the one-on-one -on -one relationship between a, a student yes. and a teacher. 
true. And I think that really matters. And I can't really offer it in all of my classes. I Why? Mean, I, there's no room for it. I mean, I can't... Um, you mean time? Uh, I think it's an administrative problem. I think that there's always time. I taught a class this summer, just finished, and I taught extra one-on-one -on -one sessions just because I wanted to do it and I felt like they needed it. But there's no way for me to put that into my hours as a teacher. Like, that's too many hours. So I think it's more of a question of what do they want to offer their students? And it's just, it's disappearing. I, I don't understand it because personally, whether I was growing up playing piano or, you know, going to music school, I always had one-on-ones. And sometimes they were awful. So I'm not saying that they're completely always the answer. But I don't know. I just really, I really loved them. I, I definitely needed it. And for me, it was one of the, even today, I... I feel like I'm more myself. One on one, I don't know. I really appreciate this thing, and I, I know there are so many old-fashioned models of teaching, yeah. and this one maybe is considered like old-fashioned. Now it could everything, be. It could now everything is about collaboration, about socializing, about you know collectivity. Sometimes it's boring, I must say. <laughs> sure. So and you know like collaborations, you know sometimes it's uh, it's needed to have this. And for me, it was very great, like useful. I actually miss it that I didn't have in master studies so much of it. I think it's the rabbi model. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just need somebody to listen to you and not really have a judgment waiting, but they're ready to step in when you have some difficulties. Like, are you sure? Maybe this is what you need. I don't know. Someone to question with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it's also nice to have outside, um, so non-institutional forms of, uh, education so the uh, record label that I run I started uh, running it like a collective with my students and I'm trying to exit care of care of editions and in the beginning I had all my students and we'd come hang out and have drinks and eat food at my uh, apartment and it was a little bit like fun times but I was like waiting for them to start curating and getting involved and it was really just slow and I was like is this ever going to take off or is it just going to be like, you know, Stalin and friends, like me telling them what to do and then yeah. them not actually taking over. But I want them to take over. And uh, finally it started to happen and I was just like, yes. I mean, the music that they were curating, some of it I don't, I'm just like, I don't get it, but it's great. I want that. <laughs> I want the chaos. That you don't also get it. <laughs> yes. No, that makes great. it fun for me. So like for me, this is, I don't know if it's education, but um I don't even care what it's called, but yeah. it came from that. It came from education. And so, no, I mean, I think for me, it's now hard to say what's not education, you know? And, you know, if we think about it, what you get from it, what you learn and what you like, um, yeah, digest afterwards. Definitely it is, especially if you like with your teacher doing this and then it comes from that. I know like our teacher is that we were like really all intellectually in love with after we finished and we went to Germany, all of us, like four of us, we were still would be sending him emails. Hey, what do you think about this idea? Kind of to give us stamp. Yes, it's good or not. And he was like, hey, we are not colleagues. Like, you stop asking me stuff. Make a decision and responsibility. Take responsibility for your actions and ideas. Risk, fail. It's enough. Like, you cannot 
rely on me for the rest of life. So it really took time for us to start like flying our own. Uh, but yeah, it's a process. Yeah, it's still, uh, it's definitely a thing. And whatever, now we are friends, you know, and like we can criticize his work as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's fun. And it's very precious, all this thing that you can do together and uh, with the students. So I think it's great. Yeah. All this thing. Thank you for being part of this uh, episode. Thank you. I loved it. It's super easy. I mean, you're so easy to talk with and you have great voice. And uh, I think it's going to be great to listen. You had other guests with a great voice. You had this one guy. He sounded like um, the governor of California. Um, Which one? I don't remember his name. Like, he like, had a like, dual like, citizenship like. as well. I think he also could speak Serbian. Ah, Anthony. Probably nice the anger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was going to like that. <laughs> cool. Great. Thank you for being a guest. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone enjoy listening this episode. And as I always say, uh, you can write the feedback on the email address provided in the description or Instagram account. Uh, hit me up with a message if you have some um, recommendation for the guests or the topic or any other feedback or if you like or dislike something um, just write me and uh, I also recently opened Patreon page uh, for this podcast which you can support if you like or if you you can also support me just one time by buying a coffee for me and my guests uh, on uh, buy me a coffee slash broken english podcast uh any anyway everything is is in the description so if you like share like and uh support thank you everyone for listening thank you